Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Time is tragically running out for those in a missing submersible. Protesters at the Hamilton Public School Board meeting studying the world of perfectionism. Hamilton has broken another building permits record. It's a big win for Canadians with a disability and a new twist on the memorial experience. We get more next on the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Time, as we all know, is dwindling to rescue those stuck on the submersible in the Atlantic Ocean. This is a search and rescue mission, 100%. We are smack dab in the middle of search and rescue, and uh, and uh, we'll continue to put every available asset that we have in an effort to, to find the Titan and the crew members. How traumatic is an event like this for not only the people in the submersible? We know they're being traumatized. And, you know, with with hours to go, it seems, of oxygen in that submersible, when it comes to the family who's watching this all unfold in real time, it must be just heartbreaking. Dr. Mel Borens is an associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto and the author of Go Away Just for the Health of It. You can find it now on Amazon. Dr. Borens, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm okay. How are you, Rick? I'm good. I can't imagine what the people in this submersible have been going through when, you know, we as humans are faced with the real prospect of death. How do, how do we deal with this? Well, you know, death and loss is, is probably one of the most difficult things we, we have human beings experience, and it certainly has an impact on us. Anticipatory grief is, um, you know, when you're already imagining the loss and you're already feeling the, the grief and the sadness. And, and sometimes associated with uh, sadness is, is guilt and, and sometimes anger. And you can imagine the families left behind, some of them might be feeling guilty. How did I allow this to happen? How could I let him go? Maybe I should have gone instead. So guilt is a difficult thing. And anger, you know, at, um, it, you know, various things to do with this kind of situation. But uh, we as human beings um, experience grief as one of the major uh, traumatic events that we have to deal with. And it's quite an emotional has a quite an emotional impact on us. So there are stages here. You mentioned sadness and anger and guilt. I would imagine denials in there, acceptance is in there at the end of the day. All these things. Well, are, well acceptance is at the end. Yeah. You know, hopefully, you know, w- w- grief gets prolonged when guilt or anger or or uh, you know fear isn't resolved. You know, so the sadness takes time to process, and over time, the sadness, you know, goes down. But if we have feelings of guilt or anger or fear, those can prolong the guilt process. Anticipatory grief is the process of saying goodbye in advance. Sometimes, you know, we have a, a relative who's who's sick and dying, mm-hmm. and we have to somehow hold on to them and at the same time let go of them. And that's a difficult process in this situation. And I think one of the most difficult things as human beings is traumatic death death from suicide or death from an accident, or in this situation, you know, death from, uh, I suppose you'd call this an accident. Dr. Mel Borens is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, an associate professor at the U of T and author of Go Away Just for the Health of It. You can find it on Amazon. I would imagine that, you know, family members and friends are watching all of this happen, as I said, in, in it's a live play-by-play of what could be the end of their loved one's lives. How psychologically damaging is this for them? Very damaging. I mean, uh, you know, a loss through a trauma, a traumatic death is one of the most difficult things we face as human beings. And, you know, it's, it's very, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to get over. Uh, you don't get a chance to say goodbye. 
you don't have that option of, of uh, you know, unfinished business that you might have with that person. And to, you know, this is kind of an error and, and you know, there has to be some feelings of guilt and anger probably and fear uh, associated with this kind of loss. One emotion we haven't talked about is hope. Because there's still hope for a miracle. And as faint as that may be at this point, hope continues to be such a strong feeling for many individuals, not just those associated with a story. Where does that hope come from? Is it just in examples that we've seen with others? For sure. For sure. I think I think hope is a very strong emotion that, you know, under all circumstances, we still have the, you know, as long as we're alive, we still have the ability to hope. Now, hope in terms of them surviving is dwindling, but hope for some kind of positive outcome or hope for this never to happen again or hope for their legacy to be uh, passed on. So different kinds of hope is the hope is, is a way of positively looking at the future, which I think is certainly better than negatively looking at the future. And, and hope uh, is what we, you know, it's how we get by day to day in spite of all the circumstances, in spite of all the suffering, in spite of all that we are dealing with, the hope is that, you know, we can live another day and enjoy our day and have fun and, and experience love and joy. And, and that's, that's really, I think, what hope is about. It's a very challenging uh, topic to cover and to think about as well, but we thank you for taking us through this uh, journey of, uh, of the stages we are experiencing, and certainly those uh, impacted by the loved ones. Dr. Borens, thanks for the time today. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate the opportunity. Dr. Mel Borens, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto and the author of Go Away, Just for the Health of It. You can find it again on Amazon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton's public school board had to call in the police on Monday night to remove some disorderly individuals, some protesters who were there to protest against the board's new procedure on gender identity and expression. Here to talk about it is Don Danko, the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Don, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Rick. Good morning. How scary, how worrisome was it for you and trustees on Monday night? Well, initially we had um, a number of people come into the building that uh, were, were being relatively, uh, I want to say respectful, that might be the wrong word, quiet, um, and and certainly were there with a very specific purpose, and that was to disrupt the meeting and, and to protest the, um, the procedure that you mentioned. And so in the room, in the space that we were in initially, you know, I would have felt safe. Um, you know, I, I was removed. I'm, I'm the furthest from the gallery that you can get. But we do have people in the room with their backs to people in the gallery. And, uh, you know, the singing of O Canada was was a signal of why they were there. You know, when, when you're yelling out O Canada, when you're using the old language of O Canada, we know that you're 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 not there for good purposes. Um, but outside the building was a different story. So that that's not what I experienced. Um, but we were really grateful to the Hamilton Police Services for one, identifying some of the people that were organizing to be at our board um, and to proactively be there to, to help us with that. Is there a fear this could happen at the next meeting? And if so, what's the plan? 
That is the question. Uh, we are seeing this happen across the province. So board meetings have been a target of these types of protests. And what's interesting is these protests aren't locally driven. Like the, we have people coming in from outside of Hamilton um, to really disrupt our board meetings uh, in protest of a number of things. We've seen that related to the pride flag. We've seen it related to masking previously or vaccinations. And now the focus is on uh, making sure that the, they they uh, put down students and staff in our system um, while we're trying to uphold human rights. So the, the question going forward is what is the, the best approach, um, knowing that we are supposed to have our meetings open to the public, but we need to balance that against um, when someone is coming and they're clearly not aligned with the values of HWDSB and they're clearly not uh, willing or interested in upholding our code of conduct as a system, well, then we need to take action earlier and not wait for a specific disruption in a meeting. Is one option to go fully remote and just remove that possibility? That is what some other boards are doing. And I think they're doing that sort of as a temporary measure until they can get a, a protocol into place that, that would be fair, um, that again, allows people to come into our board spaces. We, we want to see um, the public, we want to hear from the public, uh, but we, we can't tolerate hate. Don Danko is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ms. Danko is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, and uh, trustees were greeted by some disorderly protesters Monday night in which the board had to call police to uh, to clear them of that space. Um, all this is tied to the board's new gender identity and expression policy or procedure, and we've heard some complaints, uh, primarily on social media. We heard it in a public meeting on Saturday about the lack of consultation or communication about how this has been rolled out. Could the board have done a better job in that regard? Well, it's interesting. So our policies are public facing. We consult on our policies and, and those are the things that trustees vote on. They're, they're higher level. They're, they're not the specific details of how something's operationalized in the school. Procedures are staff facing. And yes, we, we do have them on our websites. They are available to the public, full transparency, but um, they're really focused on for staff. This is what you will do in a school when. Um, and, and we have procedures for quite a number of things. So I, I don't believe that a different approach, what we did was we rolled this out, we did training for vice principals and principals so they can support their staff. There was training for staff, um, but it, it's been available to the public um, on the website for well over, I think, two weeks now. If we had come out to try to explain to people what we're doing and why, um, many people, I think would have a, an initial knee-jerk reaction to say, this is different, I'm uncomfortable, I'm concerned, and I'm going to complain, without taking time to think about what the, the intent of this procedure is, which is really to ensure that we are protecting the human rights of all students and staff in our schools, that we are providing an inclusive place for all students and staff. Um, you know, I think some of the fears that I've been seeing, particularly online, um, are essentially accusing our male students in particular of being sexual predators and saying that this will lead to, you know, an increase of assaults in washrooms by male students. We're not talking about the students this is meant to support. And so that's concerning. That's really concerning. Um, the conversation should be around, are you talking to your sons about how they should behave at school? Not this, this is going to, to lead to, um, you know, an unsafe space for, for my child. So I believe if we, if we had actually come out to everyone um, through the media and told part of 
the story about the procedure, we would have had more of that groundswell of that initial reaction before people had time to sit with it and think about it uh, and consider how it may or may not impact uh, anyone at their school. So I, I believe that uh, as much as as, as uh, people would like us to be as open with our communication as possible. Um, this is a normal way that we would roll out a procedure. We have responded to it in the media and appreciate the time to talk today. Um, and the protest itself, that would have happened regardless of whether or not we, we had media ahead of time or we, we responded in this way. We've got about 30 seconds. Given the reaction of some parents, do you plan to continue that consultation or even an education component to what has been rolled out? I think the education component is really critical and, and it's really critical for those that will be in our schools that, that will be living um, new procedures and new access to spaces um, and new ways of doing things. Um, so we always want to go to an educative stance and make sure that we're helping people understand what are human rights? How do we support everyone in our schools and in our community? Um, and so we will continue to do that. Consultation uh, happens for a procedure, not with the general public, but with experts in the area. And that that has already happened uh, or with groups with lived experiences. So um, I don't see additional consultation happening, but certainly education will be our focus. Ms. Danko, I appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. That is Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. It'll certainly be very interesting to see what happens in the next school board meeting. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Researchers at Brock University is trying to learn more about perfectionism among youth and how it affects the parent-child relationship. Are you a perfectionist? Well, Danielle Sirianni-Molnar is an associate professor at Brock University, also the Canada Research Chair in Adjustment and Wellbeing in Children and Youth. And Danielle joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Danielle, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Why this topic about perfectionism? I've been studying perfectionism for, oh, wow, I'm going to age myself about 15 years now <laughs> in adults. And I've moved down to young people because so many young people are coming forward just having so much trouble dealing with pressure and the amount of expectations on them. So I think it's really important to study these young people so we can get some prevention and intervention initiatives in place to help them. Would you describe yourself as a perfectionist? <laughs> recovering perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> what do you hope to learn in this research? One of the things we want to look at, because so many of our studies, we tend just to focus on the person suffering from perfectionism themselves. We want to look at the broader context. So how are parents involved in this dynamic? How are youth who are perfectionistic affecting their parents and siblings? So we want to take a broader look to see kind of other people we can get involved in helping. This is a really complex issue. I mean, there's not there's not a lot of black and white here. No, it's funny you say black and white because that's how perfectionists think. It's either right or wrong. There's no middle. But no, it's incredibly complex because one of the issues is a lot of people who are perfectionistic, they use it as a badge of courage. It's part of their identity. They're proud of it very often. And they think that's why they're successful. So when someone like me comes around saying, mm, you mean like you may want to rethink that, it, they get a little defensive because they're like, but that's who I am. Like, who am I if I'm not perfectionistic? And does that mean you want me to be lazy or not try, which isn't true at all. On the other side of the equation, if they get a lot of praise every time they do something, they're thinking, Okay, I got to keep this up or, or raise the bar to continue to fall under that banner of being a perfectionist. 
You're absolutely right, which puts parents and educators and other people working with young people in a difficult position (laughs) because our natural instinct, I'm a mom as well, is to praise when things go well and, you know, to make a big deal about it. But unfortunately, people who are highly perfectionistic, they see that as pressure, even though that's not the intent. Like, oh, gee, see, that's the only reason why they love me. I have to keep performing at this level. It's what they expect or even better. So it puts people around the perfectionists in a really precarious situation. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Danielle Siriani-Molnar, Associate Professor uh, at Brock University and also the Canada Research Chair in Adjustment and Wellbeing in Children and Youth, undertaking a perfectionism study among youth and uh, how it affects the parent-child relationship. And I understand you've already spoken with some youth? Yes, yes, we did a a bunch of studies, actually, but our most recent one, we interviewed 46 young self-identified perfectionists, because the funny thing is, when we've been defining it and studying it in children and youth, we've typically used adult measures in the past, researchers, or use those models. So we said, you know, we don't think that's appropriate, because young people are quite different from adults. So we just asked them. What does it mean to be perfectionistic? How does it affect you in your daily life? And we got some really interesting answers. So, for example, a lot of the young people, they made it crystal clear to us that it's not they want to be excellent or that they're in this kind of positive, happy, striving pattern, but it's a demand. They feel they absolutely have to be to feel like they matter and that they're important and to please others. And they often described it as an angry voice in their head or someone sitting on their shoulder being very demanding, saying, no, you have to do better. You should be doing this. So it was really enlightening. And the young people we talked to were so insightful. And I thank them for sharing their stories. Is this a learned ability? That's a great question. There's been some studies and there's definitely a genetic component. So we know that there's some biology involved and the research that's been done suggests that it's surrounding anxiety sensitivity. So the biological part is these kids tend to be uh, more sensitive, a little bit more anxious coming out, but the learned component, the environment explains more. So there's definitely a strong environmental effect. We've got about a, a minute. I do want to get to the information on how people can take part because you still need some participants for this study. We do, yes. We're looking for young people between the ages of uh, 12 and 18 and a parent to participate where they would be completing surveys um, three times during the year. So once, six months later, and then six months later. And we just really want to learn from young people and their parents what's going on. So as I said, we can put supports in place for them. Anyone interested in taking parts can uh, send them an email, app, app underscore study at brocku.ca. Hey, Danielle, awesome, um, awesome insight into the world of perfectionism. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. You too. That's Danielle Siriani-Molnar, an associate professor at Brock U and the Canada Research Chair in Adjustment and Wellbeing in Children and Youth. That is, uh, that's very interesting stuff. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. City of Hamilton. It has once again broken its building permits record. This seems like an annual thing. The city passed the $1 billion mark in construction permits this year, marking the earliest the city has reached the billion-dollar milestone. And they did it on, I don't remember what the date is now. The previous record was June the 17th. 
So they beat it by, you know, a handful of days. Norm Schlein is the Director of Economic Development with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Norm, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Uh, very good this morning. Thank you. So what, June 1st is next year's billion-dollar target? <laughs> well, we'll see, but uh, just to uh, refresh your memory there, uh, on June 14th of this year, uh, the City of Hamilton surpassed the $1 billion uh, mark, uh, uh, which is the earliest the city has ever reached that. Uh, last year, like you said, it was June 17th, and... Uh, that's uh, yeah, we're we're very very proud of that accomplishment, and you know I wish our uh, our, our director of building, uh, our chief building official Alan Shaw, would be here to to have this interview because really it was his, him and his team that have done a outstanding job in processing getting these permits across the line for for so many uh, projects in the residential, commercial, and industrial sectors. Was there a an element of surprise with this, given the inflationary pressures that we've experienced over the last year and a half? You know, I, I don't think the. Uh, well, we're pleased to say that the inflationary pressures have not uh, had an impact yet. I mean, a lot of these projects have been planned in the pipe for a while, so we're, we are very closely monitoring that as, as we go forward. Uh, I can tell you that as we look forward, there are still a lot of projects that are in the pipe. Um, so I'm, I'm fairly confident that you will maybe see some continued growth uh, uh, in, in, in along the permits. And uh, I just wanted to, to take note, uh, Rick, just of one interesting thing as I was preparing for the show today. I did a 20-year. Uh, I went back 20 years uh, to take a look at uh, at the permits, and particularly in the industrial sector, because if you take a look at the balance of the permits, uh, you know, residential growth is still very strong, and you know, about 60% of those permits are coming at our residential, but close to uh, 40% are in the industrial commercial sector, and about um, you know, probably close to 35% of that is in the industrial piece, which equates to about 331 million. And that is the second highest total we've had industrial permits since amalgamation. So in the last 20 years, from from an industrial permit perspective, um, which is which is phenomenal. The only there was only one better year, and that was in 2021, and that's when we had uh, a couple of very large projects. So and considering that we're only halfway through the year and we've already hit 331 million, uh, you know, we could press hard to break that uh, half. It was almost half a million um, dollars. Sorry, half a billion, half a billion dollars in industrial permits in 2021. So I'm, I'm really hoping that, that with what we have in the pipe, that we maybe actually come close to actually hitting that mark of that record mark of 2021. What kind of feedback are you getting from builders in in all those sectors, whether it's residential, commercial, institutional, industrial, on on why they're choosing Hamilton? What are some of the benefits they're realizing? Yeah, well, you know, from the uh, when we're talking to companies that are looking to locate here, the number one. The number one piece is our proximity to workforce. Um, we, we have a very unique uh, geographic location where there's about four and a half million people within an hour's drive coming in from all around us. Uh, that is really what's uh, driving a, a lot of these things. So if you take a look into the, the downtown core and some of the uh, projects uh, that are, are, are driving things forward, the LRT project and the amount of um, uh, you know the multi-residential projects that are taking in and around the core. I mean, there's there's you know, dozens of towers that are going up. In fact, just an interesting stat, we did a, a little uh, research and see how many cranes were actually across the city. Um, and there were actually 20 cranes, like not, not portable cranes, but permanent cranes for the construction of, of larger buildings. And nine of those were in the downtown core and the rest were spread across across the city. So uh, so to see that we're hitting that record mark uh, uh, a little early, shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone because these, these cranes have been well-established for quite a while. And uh, 
And now we're starting to see the fruits of uh, their labors. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Norm Schlien, Director of Economic Development with the City of Hamilton, as we once again have broken a record in this city on uh, the $1 billion permit mark for construction permits, hitting that mark on June 14th, breaking last year's record by three days. Among the major projects listed, there's a trio of apartment projects, which is is great to see because, as you know, we have a housing crisis in this community. Multi-unit facilities are very much needed. That missing middle, we have to fill that bucket. Uh, how excited are you to see that on this list? Yeah, the, the, the more we can provide housing options for folks at all levels is, is just uh, all income levels is just so important. And I can't you know I can't express that uh, any more more importantly than that. So uh, it's it's great to see that those uh, projects and uh, are, are, are coming across the line. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have details on all of these projects. Uh, you know, our CPO would have been much better to tell you about exactly which <laughs> which project, <laughs> you know, and where. Uh, but, uh, you know, from the residential side, uh, we're, we're very pleased to see that growth happening there as well. We know there is some red tape on the residential side. And, you know, as a community, as a province, as a country, we're trying to, you know, carve away at that. Is it the same for the other sectors, whether it's institutional or industrial or commercial? You know, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't like the word red tape, but <laughs> or words red tape. But you, you know, what there there is uh, there there are rules that need to be abided by and, and processes obviously that we need to go through. Um, you know, Hamilton, along with a lot of other municipalities, have had some staffing challenges as a result of the, the pandemic. And uh, so, but I, I do believe that uh, you know we've been able to prioritize projects and, and get them across the line. Uh, in an efficient manner, but uh, there, there is always room for improvement in those areas, that's for sure. I don't know if you have this number at your fingertips, but do you know what the all-time record number for, for an entire year is when it comes to construction permits? I can tell you that that happened in 2021, and let me just have it in front of me. It was about $2.1 billion, uh, just, just over $2.1 billion in 2021. And, and so are yeah. we on pace to beat that this year? It, it, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean... Certainly, if you take a look at the numbers of where we are right now, if, if, if the current pace were to take place, we would probably come very close to achieving $2 billion. But it really depends on what permits are, are in the pipe. And, uh, uh, and you know, if there's a couple of larger ones in there that can help, uh, you know, get, get us there, that, that could be. And we do have uh, I, the, the really good news uh, piece about this is particularly on the industrial side. Uh, there's about 2 million square feet projects that, that could make it an uh, additional 2 million square feet of projects that could make it onto the docket by the end of this year if all if all went well. So, you know what, that $2 billion uh, mark uh, could could be within range, but I never like to be a, for, for, yeah, I never like to prognosticate there. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. And Norm, appreciate the time. Uh, we know that our city is growing and ECDEV is playing a huge part in that. Uh, so congratulations and uh, thanks for waking up with us this morning. No problem. And then, like I like to say, ECDEV is a team effort, so it uh, takes a, a lot of people to, to make these things happen. So. You got it. Thank you, Norm. Thank you. Norm Sleehan, Director of Economic Development with the City of Hamilton. One billion dollars, and who knows, that uh, that record from a couple of years ago could be in jeopardy if things continue to go the way they are. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I love telling good news stories on the show. We just don't get enough of them, and this definitely fits into that category. It's modeled after the Guaranteed Income Support. It's called the New Canada Disability Benefit, and it is set to receive royal assent in the Senate. And it's basically going to create a federal income supplement for low-income working-age Canadians with disabilities. 
Here to talk about it is Rabia Kenner, the National Director of Disability Without Poverty, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Rabia, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm great. How huge is this benefit going to be? It is absolutely huge. It is a game changer. It's it's systems change that is doesn't happen after like from from generation to generation. That's how significant it is. If this did not happen this week, meaning that the bill passed the House last week and passed the Senate this week and awaits the governor general's signature tomorrow, it wouldn't happen in my lifetime. And why do you say that? Well, we we haven't like you you referenced the guaranteed income supplement for seniors. Mm-hmm. How long ago was that enacted? You know, it was enacted like over oh maybe forty years now. Um, I'm too young to remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, we had a child benefit in 2016 uh, for you know families that were deemed uh, lower income, and now we're going to have the Canada Disability Benefit. So once it receives royal assent, how soon can those with disabilities who are living in poverty um, um, receive the funding that they need? Next summer, as soon as next summer. It's going to take 12 months to get regulations in place. We're going to keep pushing at Disability Without Poverty like we have since the Prime Minister made his promise of this benefit in September 2020. Uh, we're going to keep pushing for it to be done faster. But we also realize that there's, you know, the, uh, the bureaucracy has to be set up to deliver the benefit. So the benefit needs to be designed. Uh, you know, it has to fit in with provincial and other federal programs. And um, it, it has to be determined in terms of who qualifies, how much are they going to get, how are they going to apply for it? All that kind of stuff still needs to be sorted out. The the bill, uh, the law is 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 framework legislation, so it doesn't have all those details, and that's why there's been so much debate about it. We're chatting about the new Canada Disability Benefits that is on the way as soon as next summer, according to Rabia Ketter, our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rabia is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. You can check out their website, disabilitywithoutpoverty.ca. Do you have any guesstimate on how much money people can receive? Is Is there benchmarks that are put in place or something you'd like to see? Well, we are pushing for the benefit to get people over the poverty line. So there's a market basket measure. There's an, there, there are 52 poverty lines or more across the country. And so it's complicated what that magic number should be. But we know what we, what we're insisting on is that it has to get people over that poverty line. They have to be able to afford basic food and shelter. And right now, Canadians with disabilities, depending on uh, provincial programs for income supports or otherwise, are living like 40% below the poverty line. Ontario gives one single individual with a disability uh, who is not working $1,228. And the official poverty line 
now rising with inflation. The latest numbers have come in and I can't quote them exactly, but it's hovering around $2,300. So we're not talking, we used to say 30 to 40% less. Now we're talking almost 50% below the poverty line. With inflation where it has been going, it it is somewhat going in the right direction, at least compared to last year at this time. Uh, I would suspect that this is pretty good timing for this benefit to put in place. I know it's not going to be until next summer, but the wheels are turning. And you called it a life changer. What kind of – or a game changer. What kind of impact is this going to have on the 1.4 million people with disabilities in this country who are below that poverty line? It is going to be life changing. It's going to save lives. In fact, we have heard so many stories of people thinking that their lives are not worth living, that they should access medical assistance in dying, in fact, because they just cannot live with dignity. They are struggling. They can't afford basic things. Poverty is just pushing them uh, deeper and deeper into the margins and they can't cope anymore. So it's going to be a game changer. It's going to be a lifesaver. With the new benefit, uh, do you have input on on what it looks like or is that is that all now within the government's realm? Well, you know what? Government will do what government's going to do. They will talk to us. We are going to push hard for co-design. They have committed that lived experience has to be a part of the conversation. Um, We are pushing hard, uh, giving our input, whether they like it or not, one way or another, whether it's through impacting public opinion or giving uh, data, uh, bringing forward stories We are doing our part and we will continue to do our part. We've, in fact, already in anticipation of this bill, moved into the budget, the benefit campaign uh, strategy that we have. And we have over 50,000 postcards circulating in collaboration with Community Food Centers Canada across this country that people are signing and mailing off to Minister Freeland to make sure that the budget gets benefit, uh, uh, the benefit gets budgeted this year (laughs) and that it's adequate, that it's not just symbolic or token uh, that's really not going to have a substantive impact on people's quality of life. It has to change their life. Absolutely. Rabia, congratulations on helping get this over the goal line. And thank you for waking up with us and sharing this with our listeners. Thank you. Rabia Ketter is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty online, disabilitywithoutpoverty.ca. That is a great news story. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a Canadian company that is transforming the memorial experience. And this is a very cool story. It has created weatherproof QR signs that are being attached to things like headstones, mausoleum walls, Uh, Trees, memorial benches, using technology to tell the stories of loved ones who have passed. Jennifer Blakely is the founder and owner of Life's QR and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jennifer, thanks for waking up with us. Good morning. Oh, thanks for having me. This is super exciting. Where did this idea come from? Um, Well, um, I guess I'll start from the beginning. Um, I am a walker. So every morning I wake up, I walk five kilometers faithfully. And in the winter, it's difficult with sidewalks being icy and snowy. So I transitioned to my local cemetery. So it's a pretty large cemetery here in Niagara. 
Um, I go twice around and that's five kilometers. And I would walk and walk and walk so often. I would see headstones of names of people who I thought that I knew um, could be a old teacher or a neighbor or, you know, the grandparent of a friend, but I was never sure because all you see is a name and a date and you don't see any other information. So during COVID, when the QR code really made a comeback, you know, I would stop and think, why is there not a QR code here that I could scan to see who I'm looking at? So I came up with the concept of life's QR and the response has been overwhelming so far, but it's been great. Were you in the tech sector already or was this like a, a deep dive to, to get in on this? Um, my husband um, is an applications developer. He works at the Niagara region. So I approached him with the idea. He's a brilliant applications developer. So he's spent the past, you know, six months developing this technology for me. And um, we sourced a Canadian sign maker. Um, he's an expert in the field, Evan Kitchener. Um, so it's been it's been pretty smooth. All, everything has come together really well. So I've been very fortunate to have, you know, my husband create this for us and um, to make the technology available to people who want it. So where can we get these QR codes? Um, you can order them online at lifesqr.com. And we also have some funeral homes that are selling them as well. Um, so, you know, if you pop into your local funeral home, you can ask them for it. Um, they're wholesaling it for us as well. Before we get to the cost, I want to understand what exactly is within this QR realm, because you can put photos, videos, uh, a family tree, I understand. Give us the rundown of what people can add to this. That's right. So um, with the memorial, you get unlimited text. Um, so there's room to share a full life story or a biography, whatever you want about the person. Um, you have up to 200 photos, unlimited videos, a family tree, as well as a virtual guest book that is completely managed by the family. So when you're walking in the cemetery or you walk by a memorial bench, you can scan it, leave a little memory or a note for the family. The family will get notified via email that there's a note waiting for them and they can approve all the guest book entries. So it's really an interactive memorial, really the ultimate tribute to your loved ones that you know have recently passed away and um, very healing for the family to create too. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Jennifer Blakely, the founder and owner of Life's QR. Find out more online at lifesqr.com. These are weatherproof QR signs, QR codes that are being attached to things like headstones that tell more of a story of loved ones who have passed. All right, let's get to the cost. How, how pricey is this? Um, we have a couple of different sizes. Um, the prices range from $250 to $300, depending on what product you want to display. And that's a one-time fee. So what you're essentially buying is a website for your loved one. It's super user-friendly to create. There's a wizard that goes through that tells you exactly where to put everything. It's beautifully designed into a nice memorial and you never have to pay again. So there's no hosting fees. There's no ongoing fees. It's a one and done and the memorial will be accessible forever. To be honest, that's a very reasonable cost given that, yes, forever is a long time. Yes. <laughs> what's, the, what's the uptake been like? Um, it's been great. Um, we've had a lot of funeral homes sign on. We just came back from a trade show that was up in Toronto um, and a lot of interest from people who are just looking to purchase for their loved ones, to be honest with you, people who have recently passed away or even people who passed away five or 10 years ago. Like if you have a mom, dad or a grandma or a grandpa that you just you want to keep their legacy safe and you want to share their life story, this is the perfect way to do it.
Now, as we know, technology is ever-changing. What happens if the QR code goes the way of the dodo bird? Um, well, you know, the QR code's been around since the early 2000s, and it's getting even more prevalent. Like through COVID, you know, everywhere we look now, there's QR codes at restaurants and in flyers and on every single brochure, but the website will be there forever. So as well as the QR code and the scanning ability, um, you can also go to lifesqr.com and search for your memorial. And you can also share it with family and friends overseas. There's a link to share it on Facebook or you can email the memorial. So it's always going to be there via the web. It's a great idea. Jennifer, congratulations on this. Good luck the rest of the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jennifer Blakely is the founder and owner of Life's QR. Find it online, lifesqr.com. A really ingenious idea to honor your loved ones. And you connect it through this app and through a family tree and photos and videos. It's a really neat idea. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.